the choir people moved. You were supposed to sit over here. <laughs> You're always over here. <clears throat> All right. It is 7 p.m. Welcome to Route 66. Tonight is the rapture and the end of the world. What does the Bible really say about those things? I joked a little bit in our staff meeting this afternoon and said that um, the section on the rapture will be very brief. It's not mentioned in the Bible. Let's move on. Um, but we will, we will, we will, thank you for that laughter. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> like one token laugh. Um, and, and in fact, for me to say that in a, in a different setting, in a more, um, in, a, in a setting where folks take the Bible literally true, um, that would be just gigantically controversial and, and such. We'll look at that a little bit tonight and, and see what um, uh, the Bible actually really does say about this event that's not listed in the Bible. Um, that sounds weird, but we'll get there. So if you haven't signed in yet, please sign in. I would love for you to uh, let us know that you're here. If you uh, have not received any emails, uh, or if you haven't given me your email address, I should say it that way, please put your email address on one of those sheets over there so that Robin can do that. As of this afternoon at 3 o'clock, we have 114 people signed up for this Bible study. So that's kind of fun. Uh, kind of been, it's been nice to have all you come on these um, Tuesday nights to uh, get into the stuff that we've been, we've been doing and, and um, talking about. I've enjoyed it a, a lot. There is coffee over there, water and, and other things if, if you need that. Hello to everybody online. Glad you're, uh, you're here with us tonight too. We're going to be looking at a variety of texts. I'm going to try to go more slowly. So we might be here until 9.30. Yes. You can applaud, but when, you're, when it's 9.30 and I'm still talking, <clears throat> I, I, I've teased, Sherry was giving me a bad time on Sunday. I said, you come to my Bible study, you get a two-hour Bible study in 60 minutes. That's kind of the way we, we do things here. Uh, folks are still continuing to arrive, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stall a minute or two later. Stuart, can you go to the, um, uh, the slide that says the end of the world and the rapture? Put that one up pretty please. Uh, as, as folks are rising, uh, arriving, just a couple of introductory comments about, about this. Um, it's fascinating to me that we live in the richest country the world has ever seen. We live in, in a country where there is more freedom of religion here than any, and this, these are my strong opinions, but more freedom of religion here than any other country and yet the place where these ideas have taken most root is here. Now, you, you can go to uh, evangelical and fundamentalist churches in Central America, South, America uh, South Africa, South America, in Africa, and other parts of the world, and, and of course encounter these doctrines. But it's fascinating to me that they've just exploded here in the United States of America where essentially you are... You are among, you're the, the freest people in the history of the world to worship the way you want to. We are the richest people the, the world has ever seen I mean, in, in, in total and in, and in general. Maybe most of us feel middle class, but I could take you to three quarters of the rest of the world and trust me, we would be wealthy compared to the way three quarters of the rest of the world lives. And yet these ideas of escape, right? When's the world going to end? What's about to happen? Or the rapture, which is the idea that, that all, the, all the believers will be sucked up into heaven or, or whatever. And if you're on a plane where the pilot's flying, it's going to crash because if the pilot's a Christian, all that stuff. Uh, which, that's especially not in the Bible. If you can find something about an airplane in the Bible, call me. 
Um, so so it's just, it, that's a whole different conversation than what we're going to get into tonight, but I, although I'll look a little bit at a couple of, of well-known American um, uh, authors uh, who've written about these topics and have made a lot, a lot of money by writing about them, but it's just, just think about that. Think of the, that's a, that's a good late night glass of wine conversation in seminary. Why would it be in the United States that these topics would be so huge when frankly we've got it better than any culture, any country really ever has uh, since, since uh, I would argue since at least the Roman em Empire. Um, so keep that in the back, keep that kind of in the back, back of your mind. My, my, my personal pet theory is that they are revenge fantasies. That there are some folks who feel as though um, they're, they're just been, um, what's the word I'm looking for, marginalized, pushed off to the side, and this is their way of saying, boy, you're going to get yours someday. You folks who don't think the right way, believe the right way, or you're going you're gonna to get it. Now, that's a small percentage of people who think like that, but I think that's kind of the base of why these books have sold, um, books about this stuff have sold so much. All right, you're, um, let's go to the next slide. The first slide, oh, oops, sorry, my computer freaked out on me. <clears throat> okay, so Book of Daniel. Before I read that, let me tell you some things about the Book of Daniel. The Book of Daniel is a mix, although these are pretty similar, of apocalyptic and eschatological literature. Are those your two big $5 words for the night? Apocalyptic and eschatological. Uh, eschatological has to do with things of the end times. Eschaton is a Greek word for the end of things. Apocalyptic uh, is what you think it means. It's, it's this gigantic ending and this, this uh, uh, wiping clean of, of the world. That would be one way of understanding apocalyptic literature. Uh, apoc apocalyptic literature was very, very, very popular in Jesus' day. You can read uh, Mark, and there's a section in Mark that is called the Little Apocalypse. And it's where Jesus talks a bunch about the end times. We're going to look at we're going to look at one of the things that he says about that too uh, tonight. The Book of Revelation would be another example of apocalyptic and eschatological um, uh, literature. The Book of Daniel. In, in, in some ways is, is most likely inspiring. I'm sure it's known by Jesus. Um, and it, it seems to inspire some of the things that Jesus says and, and implies. <clears throat> but here's some things you need to know about the book of Daniel. Daniel is not a historical character. I don't know if that's news to you, if that was something that you always thought was true or never really cared. But, but the book of Daniel, <laughs> excuse me, although it's based in a particular time in history, it's not even vaguely close to being a historical novel. And Julie and I had a friend in Atlanta who lived down the street from us. They're members of our church. Uh, he was a, a, a writer of historical novels. So he would take like a, a story like um, Little Bighorn, uh, you know, where General Custer uh, uh, lost. <clears throat> and then he would uh, invent some fictional characters to tell the historical story while inserting these, story, this, these fictional characters into it. The book of Daniel is not even that. The book of Daniel was written probably around 160-ish BC, so 160 years before Jesus was born. It's set historically about 500 years before Jesus, um, at the time that the, uh, the Israelites were captives in Babylon. And it's written, it's written as though um, all these, so the first six chapters, chapters one through six, are the hero stories, probably the things you've heard about. When you hear the book, when you hear the name Daniel in the Bible, Old Testament, what comes to mind? What story comes to mind? Daniel in the lion's den, right? Okay. Is there another story from Daniel? I'm going to test your knowledge here a little bit that comes to mind. A kind of a hero story? The three young men. The three young men who are? In the fiery 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into the fiery furnace they go. Um, I got a million of those things, by the way. That's how, you, that's how I learned the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down and worship uh, the foreign king. It's a beautiful story. In the story, uh, the men, this isn't so beautiful, the soldiers or whoever who throw them into the fire, the fire's so hot, the guys who throw them in are burnt to death. But then somebody else comes to check on the, on the three that have been thrown in, and they say, they're just walking around in the fire like it's no big deal. In fact, there's a fourth there. And, the, and Daniel's text says it appears to be a son of God, <clears throat> which is kind of a cool thing when you think about that. Um, again, so they refuse to bow down and worship. Daniel refuses to bow down and worship, and he's punished for this. But because, they're, because they are... Um, Pietistic, does that word make sense? Because, they, because they, they take their faith so seriously, they're rescued miraculously by God. That's, that's the story. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, sort of um, uh, congressmen, as, as it were, probably, in, in, in the context of the story. They refuse, they're saved. Daniel, um, he's thrown in with the lions. In the lion's den, the lion's mouths are clamped shut, and there's an angel there that helps him, and, and all the rest. So why are these stories being, then, then seven through 12, I'll get, get ahead of himself on the why. And then chapter 7 through 12 is a ton of apocalyptic and, and, and weird, strange imagery and, and wild stuff. We're, that's, that's what we're looking at right here, uh, Dan, Daniel 12. I'll look at that more carefully in, in a moment. Just crazy, wild stuff uh, with all these images and promises and things. That, boy, they're gonna, when the judgment comes and people are going to pay and are the people who are not living the way they're supposed to are really going to get it, etc. And, and that's the stuff that a lot of folks in today's more evangelical fundamentalist worlds take that and then they try to pull it up and lay it down into our world and use it as a way of predicting the, the end of things and what's all going to happen and Russia's going to invade Israel and Israel's going to be defended by the United States. The United States is going to have to deal with Turkey and all that craziness. Um, none of that's accurate. The book of Daniel is written around 160. What's happening in Israel in 160? Anybody know? Antiochus Epiphanes that's going to be on the test. Antiochus Epiphanes. By the way, the second part of his name, Epiphany, means giver of light. Um, chances are pretty good he gave himself that name. He's a Syrian king. He's part of the Greek empire. He is overseeing Israel. He wants to, quote, Hellenize. You know what that means? Greek. Turn the, turn the Israelites into Greek folks and, and Hellenize them. He wants to Hellenize uh, uh, Palestine. And, and sort of, it's, it's almost kind of like this part is, is maybe not too much of an overstatement. Back in the 40s, 50s, and uh, maybe even in the 60s and 70s, churches in the United States would send missionaries to Africa or to other parts of the, of the world, India, Asia, other parts like that. And, and you can go to some of these places. In South Africa, I've been there. And they set up their churches with pews. And the men started wearing white shirts and skinny black ties. This is back in the 60s especially. And the women started wearing dresses. In other words, they brought American-style church in and laid it in. They tried to Americanize. Um, we've since discovered that's not a very good way. That's a terrible way to do missionary work. Because uh, it was more about our culture than it was about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Antiochus Epiphanes is trying to do. He's trying to, to make those who live in Palestine into good Greek citizens. And so he wants to Hellenize them. He wants them to worship Greek gods. Uh, um, and, and by the way, um, sometimes when you hear these stories, or at least when I hear them, I tend to think that there was this una, u, u, unanimous kind of overwhelming, oh, we can't do that, that's terrible. It was actually a big debate in Israel among especially educated elite folks. 
the Hellenization wouldn't be a bad thing. There's much we can learn from the Greeks. Their philosophy is brilliant and that sort of thing. And, and, and you know, so there was, although there were a couple of rebellions I'm going to talk about in a moment, um, the idea that there was sort of this one uniform way of thinking uh, did not exist then, just like it didn't exist in our own Revolutionary War. I mean, there were people that were loyal to the king. Have you, have you read any of the, the history? Of, uh, great book, 1776. Um, some others that, that tell about our, our Revolutionary War. There were different factions and those who wanted to do this and those, I'm not a historian, so I'm kind of filling in the gaps here of what I don't know, but you understand there, were, there was a broad diversity of thought about what to do in 1760, for example. How do we deal with the taxation? How do we deal with this new colony, etc.? So even within Israel, there was this debate about who's, uh, is it a good idea to go ahead and let the, uh, the Greek style of philosophy and religion take over, or should we maintain who we are? Well, there were two reactions, negative reactions against um, Antiochus Epiphanes. One of those was led by Judas Maccabeus. Have you heard of the, of the Maccabees before? the Maccabean Revolution. Uh, many people, and I, I agree with them, uh, believe that Judas Maccabeus' name is actually a nickname, that it comes from the Aramaic word, which is very close to Hebrew, the Aramaic word makaba, makaba, which in Aramaic means hammer. The, the idea was that Judas Maccabeus's uh, um, uh, revolt was done by, um, uh, we have our Holy Land group all sitting together over here in this, uh, this third. Y'all remember coming out of Jericho and driving back up the mountain up, up to Jerusalem? Well, on that road, especially in antiquity, 2,000 years ago, that was one of the most dangerous roads in the, in the ancient Near East. It was really dangerous because you could be walking around a corner and boom, there you are. There's, there's a couple of robbers. The, the Good Samaritan story, for example, kind of illustrates that same idea. Well, what Maccabeus would do is he'd wait for um, Antiochus Epiphany's troops to come marching along one of these narrow roads. They're waiting on the other side. They jump down in, slice them up, dice them up, cut them, attack them, steal some of their stuff, and then run back up in the hills. That's how he got the, the nickname of the hammer. He would come down and hammer them hard and then be gone quickly. So rather than fight conventionally, um, they fought, uh, uh, yeah, what's the word, uh, like guerrilla, thank you, yes, like guerrilla warfare, which again, similar to our own American um, uh, revolution. You know, the British came walking in in bright red coats and we hid in the, bush we hid in the bushes and then, and then we jumped out and slapped them around and jumped back in the bushes. I, 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 that's a semi-interpretation that's, that's accurate. So yeah, I'm, I'm telling you all this I, because I want you to see what the book of Daniel is actually about, it's actually a, a, an amazing story about all of these, um, the, these uh, heroic fictional figures who, whose purpose is to inspire the people who are dealing with Antiochus Epiphanes and his desire to Hellenize uh, Palestine. One of, the re, one of the revolts was by Maccabeus. The other one is represented by Daniel. And Daniel's people are, we're not going to jump out from behind rocks and hammer them. What are we going to do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What do they do? Do they organize a revolt and, and a small guerrilla warfare? What do they do? Bow down or we'll throw you in the fire. What do they do? They refuse to bow down. Daniel, worship the king or we'll throw you, we'll throw you down with the, with, the, with the lions and they'll tear you apart. What does he do? He refuses. So Daniel, in a fascinating way, um, by the way, how many of you have uh, the Maccabean books in your Bibles? Uh, mine has them, mine has them in, the, in, the, in between the Testaments. If, if you've got a good Roman Catholic Bible, you're going to have them in there. So here's a nice thing. So if you've got a Roman Catholic Bible, or you've got like, one like mine, and you've got those intertest the, uh, sometimes called intertestamental literature, 
you've got the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and then you've got the Maccabean books. Here's Daniel basically saying, the way we deal with this is that we practice our faith and we don't attack. The Maccabees are like, skip that. We got swords and hammers and stuff. We're going to come flying out of the hills and we're going to show them who's, who's in charge. So I, again, a couple things there. Look at that. Two different approaches within Palestine to dealing with this, to dealing with this occupation. What Daniel's, what Daniel's trying to do um, with his, and by the way, at least two authors the person who wrote Daniel 1 through 6 is different from the person who wrote 7 through 12. In fact, there's a whole chunk that's all in Aramaic. Um, from, I forget from where, like 3 to 8, something like that, chapter 3 to chapter 8. So maybe even the first person who wrote it, maybe there's as many as three, three or four authors. It's really complex history. I don't want to, want to get into all that. I reviewed it for about a half hour today and went, yeah, we'll do that some other time. Um, but it's a complex book that was put together later by an editor. What the editors of Daniel want is for us to be inspired. They want us to, okay, you're, you're being, you're, it's terrible to be alive right now. We hate Antiochus Epiphanes and what he's doing. And by the way, do you know why they hated him so much? Do you know what his first act was? Anybody know this? He, exactly. He set, up, he set up an altar to Zeus on top of the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, if you really want to irritate everybody in Israel, just do that. And that was called the abomination of desolation. If, you, if you've got your Bible open to Daniel 12 um, right now, look at verse 11, and you'll see a reference to that very act by Antiochus Epiphanes. Somebody's got it. Read it out nice and loud. I may be able to find it real quick, too. Here it is. From the time that the regular burnt offering <clears throat> is taken away and the abomination that desolates is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. That's a reference. That would be like if I stood up and said, when the Bay of Pigs war is concluded, we'll know who the great strong leader is. What am I talking about? Cuba, Bay of Pigs, right? If I say Bay of Pigs. If I say, if I say something like, um, maybe I need to get farther up in history to catch everybody up. Um, if, I, if I say, uh, on, when, when, the, when the evil bombers of 9-11 appear, you'll know X, Y, Z. We, you know what I'm talking about, right? Those are historical references. That's a historical reference right in the middle of the book of Daniel about something that's happening, happened within a few years of the time that it's written. So this is a, a book written to inspire them to stand up against, pietistically, stand up against um, uh, the, the occupying force of Antiochus Epiphanes and, 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 and the rest. <clears throat> what we do is, what some folks, and this is only... This idea of the rapture was, it's only about 175 years old. It really came up in, in early American uh, Christian fundamentalism. Um, when people started to read the book of Daniel and started to see it as some, somehow predicting the future, that all these various images and strange things, especially 7 through 12, are signs of, of how the world's going to end and what's going to happen. Now, why, why do they pick on, on Daniel? Because it's apocalyptic and it's eschatological. And it sounds a lot like, if you flipped ahead over to the book of Revelation, you hear the same kind of language about dragons and judgment and flame out of the sky and, and those who don't believe will be sent away forever. The, the point Daniel's wanting to make is, if we can stay together, we can get through this. That's a simple but fairly clear understanding of what's going on in Daniel. If we can just simply uh, force our way through. So I pointed out um, 12... 
uh, 11 is, is left to the abomination of des desolation. Uh, let's look at this text here. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people, shall arise. There shall be a, a time of anguish, such as never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall de be delivered. Everyone who's, everyone who's found written in the book. It's a word of hope. It's a word saying, you're going to be delivered. Stay firm in your faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they survived the fire. Daniel, he survived the lions. If we stay together and we stand together faithful, we will eventually uh, uh, be, be delivered. Now again, here's kind of the thing. I just, just, this just, what time is it? Gotta keep going. It just fascinates me. These folks are act actually undergoing horrific persecution. I mean, there's stories from this time when, um, uh, I don't even want to pick on anybody in the room. It, it, let's, let's say we have um, uh, Betty and Joe Smith. And, and Joe has been fighting with the Maccabean Revolution. He's been captured. He's been killed, executed. To make the point, you know what they go and do? They get Betty, and they kill her, and then they kill her baby. They hang her on a tree, and they hang the dead baby around the mother's neck. Now, that's serious. That's real persecution. Uh, anybody who says to me, uh, you know, we're under persecution in the United States of America because we can't say Merry Christmas, I have a long lecture for you. Um, uh, if, you think, if you think Christmas is, is at, if we're at war with Christmas, just go shopping on December 24th and see how at war our, our culture is. Maybe with the actual message of Christmas, but we aren't going to change, we aren't going to get rid of Christmas anytime soon in the United States of America. The, the, the Syrians, the Seleucids would be the more proper way to s describe them. They would do things like this as a way of saying, we're in charge. Don't mess with us. Uh, another thing that often would happen is a tree would be taken, a branch would be stripped of all the smaller branches, it would be filed down to a point, and the father would be impaled on the point of the tree. Um, the Bible is R-rated. I mean, it's the, the violence and some of the things, that's real persecution. That's what Daniel's writing about. It's how to, how, to, how to find the power and the strength to get through. <clears throat> okay. Let's go to the next slide. Luke 17, 20 through 21. Somehow that's the wrong slide. Uh, Stuart, I think I want... Oh, that's, the, that, that's right. Keep going. One more slide. Next one. There we go. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Keep going. One more. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. So I, I, I wanted to go with this text first to kind of give you what I, I, I think there are verses, especially in Jesus' teaching, that I call umbrella verses. There are some other points that can come underneath the umbrella, but here's an umbrella verse for you. So the kingdom of God sometimes is used apocalyptically or eschatologically as the idea of, oh, someday the kingdom of God's coming and everybody better look busy because he's kind of ticked. You know, that kind of that joke was out there. That joke gets huge laughs among fundamentalists. Um, uh, but here's Jesus saying the kingdom of God is among you. Now, in the Greek, if, if you all had Greek Bibles, we could play with how to translate the word that's there for among. It can mean within, 
You know, it's already within you. The, the seeds for God's kingdom, for the way God wants you to live, is already in you. You are already bearing the marks of the kingdom of God. Or, the way the New Revised Standard translation is, is among you. The kingdom of God appears when, when, the, when the faithful community is acting, living, loving, caring for each other. And the kingdom of God is found when the community is together. Or, it's both. I kind of lean toward the within you. Um, I, I like that translation. I think in the Greek, especially in Luke's text, it works better. But it, it, I'm about 50.1% on that side and 49.9% on the other side. I think you can make strong arguments either way. But doesn't that kind of sound like First Community Church? I mean, that's what I love about our church. We've been saying since our founding pastor that our simple bar is to follow in the ways of Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus according to Luke. According to Luke, the kingdom of God is among you. And whether that's within or we experience it in the community or it's both of those things, it's both and, I really think that's a, a beautiful uh, illustration of, of who we've tried to be for, for over a century. Think of it, here's another way to think of this too. How many of you have seen the risen Christ? I didn't think so. <laughs> so we've experienced the resurrection very much like every generation since the disciples. That's through the community of, of, of Christ. It's in the community of faith, of those who are uh, living in the ways and teachings and following in the life of Jesus Christ. We experience something like the resurrection. I'm not going to get into resurrection. I do believe in a bodily resurrection. I love David Hett's uh, article in this month's First News. If you haven't seen it yet, go find First News and flip about two-thirds of the way through, and you'll find David Hett's article on the bodily resurrection. It's beautiful. But I've never seen Jesus, except I've seen Jesus in some of you. I've seen Jesus in the way some of you are with each other. That's, that's how I've experienced the resurrection. So, again, here's a verse. Again, in my mind, it's an umbrella verse that, that says this is really what we focus on, not the end of the world and the rapture and who's going to get it and who's not going to get it, but rather this understanding the kingdom of God has already, has already come. Um, okay. By the way, this question, um, there was a question asked of... Um, of Jesus here before by the Pharisees. And it's a pretty legitimate question. The Pharisees, just so you know, probably were Jesus's, some of his best friends. Who were the Pharisees in Jesus's day? They were the educated religious leaders of, of the community of faith. They were me. <laughs> we have, we, we use the, when we use the word Pharisee in a pejorative, negative, don't be such a Pharisee about this, it's actually, it's, if you've said that, I'm not calling you an anti-Semite, but it can lead to anti-Semitism. It can lead to us understanding, that, oh, those, those Pharisees, those, and you can see how you can, you can pile on top of that. Pharisees were well-respected, oh, this part isn't about me, but um, were educated leaders of the faith community expected to provide teaching and instruction and understanding, lead worship, all of those sorts of things. Chances are pretty good Jesus was pretty good buddies with a number of the Pharisees. Just some of them get elevated as sort of arrogant jerks. Now we're starting to sound like preachers in the 20th century, 21st century, um, who would argue with Jesus and become foils for the gospel storytellers. But uh, essentially they were, they were not. Uh, um, 
So, don't look outside for the kingdom of God. Don't wait for it to come down from somewhere. It's, it's either within you or within the community, or maybe it's even both. All right, let's go to Matthew 24, 36. I don't think you were assigned this text, um, or maybe you were. Uh, no, it's the next one that you weren't assigned. No, you weren't this one. Okay, but about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. This is like the whole key text for the whole night. You can leave now if you want to. This is like, this is like the most important one to take home and take away with you. When somebody says to me, do you think the signs are there? Do you think Jesus is about to come back? Do you think, when do you think he's coming? I quote this text. What's it say? No one knows. Now that's according to Matthew's gospel. That's according to what Jesus said. No one, Matthew's understanding of what Jesus said. No one knows. If Jesus doesn't know, why are we spending time talking about it? It just makes me crazy. Uh, Julie and I went to a, um, um, a, a, to hear a, a famous preacher. His name was Chuck Smith. He's the guy who founded Calvary Chapel. Anybody know about the Calvary Chapel churches? Anybody? I, I, no, a couple of guys do. Um, the Calvary Ch- Chuck Smith was a beautiful pastor. He was an amazing, and I mean, in his pastoral skill, he was a, a marvelous communicator. You could sit through a sermon of his and feel like you were almost with Jesus. And just have this very low-key style and, and just had a way of talking and telling stories that that made you want to get closer to him, you know? Um, at the same time, he was very much into this end times theology. And that was really foundational to his work and his ministry. We got to get as many people out there to hear this news about Jesus because Jesus is coming soon. And Julie and I went to hear him, I think it was about 1978, a year or so before we got married at South, South Eugene High School. 900 people crammed in this, in this high school gymnasium. And he actually stood up and said, I've done the research, I've read the books of Daniel, I've read the books of Revelation, I've studied the signs, I'm comparing what's going on in the world, Jesus will be coming back by 1981. He, he didn't, I, I don't think he did. Actually, I, I, got, I got a response to that, I'll, say, I'll get back to that later. Um, you see, see what happens as soon as you say, oh, it's going to be here. Do you remember the, the guy a few years ago out in Oakland, out in Oakland, California? Why are all the crazy ones from California? Um, <laughs> guy out in Oakland, he was sure it's coming, Jesus is coming this date, and they had billboards around and everybody. Uh, I got interviewed on the radio in Kansas City, and, and they wanted me to explain the guy, and I said, he's not reading the Bible because, and I, it was my buddy EJ, who's a disc jockey in Kansas City, who interviewed me. I quoted Matthew. No one knows. If Jesus says no one knows, why, why are we worried? <clears throat> Key verse. Uh, no one knows. Now, Jesus is he influenced by Daniel? I think so. Remember, Daniel's not predicting anything. Daniel is saying, be faithful, be strong, stand for your faith. Jesus has kind of underlined that. Look, nobody knows. Uh, also, Isaiah 65, I think we put that up last week, or it's, or it's, gonna, it's not going to be up there right now. Isaiah 65 uh, promises that God will make a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to look at Revelation 21 in a minute. You can see where John was inspired to write that in the end of all ends, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God will wipe every tear from every eye. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning. The sea will be gone. Remember the sea is a place of fear and fright and and worry? Jesus is inspired by by all of these these folks. I think Isaiah is Jesus' favorite prophet. All right, let's go to Luke 21, 9 through 11. Remember, if you're in your Bible, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke. So if you were in Matthew, a couple, couple books later, it's going to be Luke. 
When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. So, uh, here, so here was that mushroom uh, um, umbrella verse uh, of, you know, no one knows the, the day or the hour. Now here's, a, here's Jesus kind of getting into some uh, instruction about that, uh, that idea. No one, uh, when you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. So if you're living in, um, if you're living in, in Jerusalem, and there's a terrible war in Athens, and it's, you, you, it's going to affect what happens in Jerusalem. How long is it going to be before you hear about it? Weeks, at best, weeks. And what happens, um, what, what happens if, I, if I whisper in, into Richard's ear uh, a, a secret, and then he whispers it and whispers it and goes all the way around? What happens that, that secret by the time it leaves from there to here, all the way over the side? It changes its way, you know, depending on who the messenger is. I mean, one time in, in Atlanta, uh, I got a call at home on a Saturday. I've been outside working in the yard, and um, uh, Sweet Polly, who was the head of the women's fellowship and just this wonderful leader in the church, a deacon and a lifetime deacon, um, she was so amazing. I get a call. Julie's on the prayer line. She's like the last person on the prayer line for the women's fellowship, and Julie gets a call. Polly's dying. Holy cow, Polly's dying. I clean up real quick, change my clothes, jump in my car, drive to Northside Hospital. Polly is sitting in her um, uh, hospital bed eating some uh, yogurt. And I said, or not yogurt, I'm sorry, she's having uh, cranberry juice. She's drinking some cranberry juice. I said, Polly, you're not dead. And she goes, not yet. <laughs> I said, are you okay? I just got word that you were dying and that things were not looking good. She's, oh, I think I know how that happened. Earlier this morning, I called the prayer line and I told them I have a bladder infection. I wish I were dead. <laughs> I have a bladder infection. I wish I were dead. Polly's dying. So here we have, I'm not sure how that fits a war story, but here's, here's a war in Athens. The report comes down around through Turkey, down, then, down the Mediterranean, the east side of the Mediterranean, down into Jerusalem. God knows, God, well, God maybe knows, but who else knows? No one knows, you know, how much did that story change? What, oh my gosh, what happened? How many were killed? Who's coming? Are they coming for us? Jesus essentially is saying, don't get caught up in that. Now, what, we, what some of the end times people do is, oh, oh, uh, the Middle East, is, uh, there's unrest. Uh, the Palestinians are mad at the Israelis, and the Israelis are mad at the Palestinians again. Oh, it's up. It's, uh, oh, and look, the Russians, they're working together with the Syrians. Oh, that was there. Jesus is talking about that. That must be a sign of the end. No, it's the way things have been for about 5,000 years in that part of the world. Um, some of you I know have been to Megiddo. Anybody else been to Megiddo in, the, in, in uh, Palestine? <clears throat> there, where the ruins are there? Yeah, Wayne, you've done a, a trip to the Holy Land. Or the, where the ruins of about seven or eight or nine or ten cities are built on top of each other. It's now called Har Megiddo. Is that starting to sound familiar? What does Har mean in, in, um, in Hebrew? It means mount or mound or mountain. Har Megiddo. Armageddon. Megiddo is located in a plain in the, sort of the crossroads of the ancient Near East with this big, huge, absolutely beautiful valley, Valley of Jezreel, I think, uh, um, where many times over hundreds of years, big, huge, giant battles happened. So now Armageddon becomes connected to the idea of the end of the world. People start taking those kinds of things like this out of context, put them together. Oh, there's another, there's another sign that it's going to happen. No, what Jesus is really saying is the one thing you ought to be paying attention to is me. The one thing you ought to be worried about is my teaching, this gospel, this good news. The prophets of, uh, of 
named Isaiah and Jeremiah, what they were teaching hundreds of years before me. That's what you need to pay attention to. Don't get caught up in all these wars and, and rumors of, of, of insurrections and so forth. Um, and, and there's another text, I didn't, I didn't get it up there, um, but, but it's about earthquakes and storms and, and, and all that. Do you remember when the earthquake hit Haiti? And do you remember there was a TV preacher who said that it was because God was punishing them for voodoo? It's kind of hilarious. It took God hundreds of years to punish Haiti for voodoo. <clears throat> and, and why is God punishing the poorest of the poorest of the poor? People in a country who are still paying for the effects of their enslavement hundreds of years before. Same preacher said that, that um, the hurricane that hit New Orleans, which one was it? Katrina. The same, same hurricane that hit Katrina, that hit New Orleans, was God punishing that city for its evil ways. Do you know the single, not single, but one of the primary streets that suffered absolutely zero damage? Do you know which one that was? It's Bourbon Street. God's got really bad aim. And to make a serious point out of that, who suffered the most in New Orleans? Like in Haiti, the poorest of the poor. So when I, it's my opinion coming out pretty strong here. When we get caught up in that nonsense, and that's not the word I was thinking of, when we get caught up on that, we actually are going against the teachings of Jesus. When we fail to see that what's really going on in New Orleans is how much the poor have been marginalized, how much they've been put off in communities that are in danger, when we look at a country like Haiti and we realize that not only was, it, was slavery there, but we, we planted, uh, we folks in, in power, planted sugar canes everywhere, ruined the country. Is, do, we, do we pay attention to those things? No, well, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about, oh, that's a sign of the end of the world. Uh, and it helps us ignore the things that Jesus actually calls us to deal with today, which we looked at in Matthew 25 last week. <clears throat> All right, let's keep moving. Now we get to some interesting stuff. First Thessalonians uh, 4, 16 to 18. Oh, it's not there. I'm sorry, this one. This one. For, uh, is, that, is there a slide right before this one, Stuart? Can you go back one? Is there a 4, 16 through 18? Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what? That one. No? Uh, just stay there. I'll skip to 4. Uh, let me <laughs> leave that up. Just leave that there. Um, in the first letter to the Thessalonians, which is probably one of the oldest documents in the New Testament, uh, it's mostly about Jesus. There's a couple words in there about the end of the world and things coming, falling apart. Why, why, why is Paul, right, or whoever wrote it, whether it was Paul, we don't know for sure, but whoever wrote it to the Thessalonian church, why is he writing to them about that Jesus is going to take care of us? Jesus is going to help us. Jesus is going to speak to us believers. What's he saying? What's Paul trying to do? Same thing as Daniel. Give us hope. Give us, give us courage. Remember what Jesus said about this. Remember what Jesus said about this. And there's all kinds of practical advice there. We, we tend to look at these texts and go, oh, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And we, we, we focus on judgment. But what, 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 they, what the people reading it saw was, oh, for which you are also suffering. It's worth what we're putting up with. What we're dealing with and facing right now is, is worth it. It's painful. It's hard. It's, it's harsh, but it's a word of hope. The world 
in the early church saw what Jesus was teaching and what the church was practicing as a threat and a challenge. That's why the suffering is coming. What, what Paul wants them, or whoever wrote this letter, what he wants them to see is no, what you're doing matters. What's the threat and the challenge? I mean, a bunch of, a bunch of crazy people who, who think Jesus is, is the Savior and they have bread and wine every Sunday and they have a little meal and they sing hymns and pray. Why is it a threat and a challenge? Any ideas? What does Jesus say in the, Lord's prayer, in, in the Sermon on the Mount? You think of some of those things he says in the Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemy. Roman soldiers, oftentimes, if they converted to Christianity, they'd put down their sword. Others who were already Christian would be conscripted into the army. They'd refuse to fight. Is that a threat and a challenge? Darn straight it is. Uh, Jesus also says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Jesus also says, if someone asks for your coat, give them both your coats. Jesus also says, if somebody asks you to carry their pack for a mile, carry it two miles. Jesus also says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus also says, everyone who is the least of these, hungry, in prison, naked, without food, thirsty, if you took care of them, you're going to heaven. If you don't take care of them, you're, you're not going to heaven. It's going to be real hot for you. Do, you. do you hear the challenges and the threats here? Those who are in power especially see that as a tremendous threat. In the book of Acts, it's stated that the church did what? Shared all their possessions equally among each other. We're going to do that this Sunday. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it, if I did say that, if I could convince the board, hey, let's, let's have a, everyone share your possessions and everyone walk out the room equal, I think we'd have a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> but that's, the, that's the, or the signs of the early church. If you were hungry, they fed you. Let's, I don't want to get into the health care debate that's going to be, be coming up in the next couple of years, or, or maybe we're going to avoid it. We'll see how that goes. Um, the first hospitals were formed by who? Churches. Churches. The first hospital. How much did they charge to provide you care? Zero. Zero. I don't, I don't know what that says about your, our, our political system at the moment, but that's a threat and a challenge. And the church, by the way, if you're not a believer and you're brought into this little, I mean, the, the hospital, we're talking about a room, okay, but still a place where you could receive care. If, you're, if, you are, if you worship Zeus and, you, and he's your primary God and you're brought into this church and, and you're, you're not doing well, you've got a, a compound fracture of your arm or you've got a tre tremendous fever or whatever it is, what did the church do? Say, this is only for Christians? No. They have Jesus in their head. When you do it to the least of these, it's like you're doing it to me. Come in. We'll help you. Here's some cool water. Let's see if we can reset that break and, and, and all the rest. That's, that's, that's what this text is really telling us about. It ain't about the rapture and all that stuff. Well, let's look at a couple rapture texts here real quick. Um, I'm starting to preach on that. Sorry about, sorry about that. Okay, next, next text. Should be 2 Thessalonians 1. No, keep going. That's the last one. All right, here we go. So these will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. One, next verse. When he comes to be glorified by his saints and be marveled at, at 
on that day among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Again, folks who get caught up in this end times theology, they look at this and they see that and say, oh, oh, only the believers, only the believers. Uh, was, was, was with a friend from high school, much more fundamentalist, having an argument online, and he said, and he, and he said to me, um, are you a believer or not? I wrote back and said, on my best days, yes. And I quoted the Bible. What did the, what did the father whose son was, was terribly ill say to Jesus? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think I'm in pretty good company. But we hear the word belief and we think of, here's a list of doctrinal statements one must ascribe to. In the last 150 years, we've turned the idea of believing in God or believing in Jesus into an intellectual, reasonable assertion that one must then sign your name at the bottom. I therefore believe this. I agree with all these assertions. In the New Testament, you've probably heard me say this before, that the word here for believe means to give one's heart. It's not an ascription of, I believe that in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It is to give one's heart to. Marcus Borg, who spoke, in, who spoke at our church, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, uh, um, at the South Campus, um, he's, the guy, he's the one who first taught this to me in his book, um, uh, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. To believe in the New Testament world is to give one's heart to. I've given my heart. I've given my heart to Julie. Um, most days I think she gives her heart to me. Um, you know, you know I, when she wrote, she wrote me a note, I don't know, six months ago and said, I believe in you. And, and I knew what she meant by that. I, and it wasn't, I, I think you're a great preacher, or your sermons are good, or you're, pff, none of that stuff. She tells me when I'm not, so I don't worry about that. But there was this bottom line statement. That's, what, that's what's happening here in, in, in this letter to the Thessalonians. Because of what you've given your heart to, you're going to be able to survive this. Because you've given your heart to each other and to, and to Jesus and to God, you're, you're, going to, you're going to be able to get through. All right, now 1 Peter 1.13. <clears throat> Next text. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, discipline yourselves, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Um, again, some people point to this and say that proves, uh, that's proof of the rapture. Does anybody see it? I, it's not there. <laughs> they take the word revealed. Oh, that's a sign. Well, well just revealed just means to shine light upon, to, to, uh, um, uh, uh, to bring into the light, to bring into being and into understanding. Next one, first, um, yeah, First Peter 3, 18 through 19. This is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. <clears throat> and I, I reference it all the time. But this is, this is again, here's what, I, here's what I want us to understand on this end of the world stuff. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. Not just the ones who think alike and worship alike or have signed their names at the, at the belief statement at the bottom. All, which I'm pretty sure still means all. The righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Go, next. In which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Where did he go? According to Peter, he made a proclamation. He went to preach to the spirits in prison. What's the metaphor? What is it referring to? Jail. Hell. 
he went to hell. Now, if it happens that you're in hell on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter, and you get to hear Jesus preach, yay, that's a good thing, right? No, no, no. Peter's making a broad, gigantic statement here. Uh, the old King James. Anybody have a King James open to this text? Anybody? Where's our King James person? Somebody used to have it. Do you have there? What's, it, what's, what's um, verse 19 say? To the spirits in prison, or does it say Hades, or... Oh, it says that, okay, that, that, there's another translation that says he went and preached to the saints in hell. Um, and the reason that that translation comes up like that is because people couldn't stand the idea that Jesus was proclaiming and preaching to the spirits. In Greek, the word for spirit is suke, souls, it's also translated. Whoever's there. Not, not, they're not good, they're not bad, they're just souls, whoever might be there. But we, so the, the theology grew up around this, that Oh, this is, Ab it's, it's Abraham and Isaac and, jo and, and Jacob and Joseph and, Mary and Joseph and, and King David and all, all the good uh, uh, people from uh, our, our own religious faith history. Jesus went and preached to them. Now they get to come to heaven with Jesus. Isn't that nice? No, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying that, and in fact, remember what I said about time? We talked a little bit about time. You know, we, our time is, we think of it like this, but if you go outside and look at the stars later tonight, you're actually looking at ancient history. You know, my understanding of, uh, I quoted a Tony Campolo story, my understanding of time is that in God's time, all of us will be united in, in what we call the twinkling of an eye. That's another text from, um, uh, from Thessalonians, or from Corinthians, rather, in the twinkling of an eye. It's another text that, that is sometimes used to refer to the rapture. I think it's actually this brilliant understanding and insight from Paul that although people have died hundreds of years ago, we can dig them up and still find their bones. In this twinkling of an eye, in the twinkling of time, in, in, in God's time, we will then finally be reunited. I'll look at Revelation 21 and talk about that in a moment. But I love this text here and what it implies. On, on, on a theological, in the world right now level, it implies that if you feel like you're stuck in hell, the promise from Jesus is he's going to come down to you. Right now. That, that, that promise is real. In a, in, a, in a theological beyond this world understanding, if there is a hell, Peter is telling his church and telling us, Jesus is going to come find us over and over and over and over and over again. My friend, friend Robert Capon, another person who's preached here, he's, he's, he's dead now too. Um, Capon, everyone who preaches here dies. I don't know how that works. Capon says that the cross is planted in hell. Oh, he's being metaphorical, but you get the idea? That the cross is there. That's the symbol of the cross, is that it's been planted in hell so that Jesus can bring everyone who might find themselves in that place, um, metaphorically or otherwise, uh, home. If that's true, I'm not worried about the end of the world. Okay, Revelation 1-7. Did we miss 1-7? Go back one, one verse. Look, there it is. Look, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. <clears throat> Again, uh, you see how the imagery gets translated literally? Oh, Jesus will be coming on the clouds. He's going to fly in on the cloud. I, when I got interviewed by my friend EJ on the radio about the crazy guy in Oakland who was predicting the end of the world, it was going to happen at this time. I said, now, what time is that in Australia? And if, if, it's, if it's 4 o'clock on a Tuesday in Oakland, isn't that like 6 o'clock on a, 
I don't even can't think about it. Is it, are they ahead of us or behind us? What, uh, so the next day, you know, it's, what, how exactly, is he going to spin around the whole world like Superman real fast and show her, what is this, it's, it's just, that's not what this is about. The book of Revelation, apocalyptic, eschatological, right? Like the book of Daniel, which was earlier, is written to people being persecuted. A lot of people think that the evil person, the, the um, antichrist, in the book of Revelation was Emperor Nero. That Nero was horrific in the way he treated Christians. There are stories about Nero gathering up Christians, dipping them in tar, and burning them alive, and using them as torches to light his parties. Sounds kind of antichrist-like to me. <clears throat> Tons more stories like that that are gross and disgusting. We won't, won't get into those. But do you see the idea? The book of Revelation is completely useless if it's only predicting something that's going to happen 2,000 or more years in the future. It's a complete waste of time. What it's writing to is a particular people in a particular place in a particular time who are dealing with tough stuff. When I, when I preach sermons, I'm not preaching a sermon that I think, oh, maybe somebody's going to read this in 20 years and think that was really good. I hope that that'd be a nice thing. But when I write my sermons, I'm thinking of you. I'm seeing your faces and your, your loves and your losses and your families and your friends and your joys and your celebrations and your worries and your fears. And, and I'm looking at the United States of America and I'm looking at the world and what's going on today in our particular time, in our particular place, among a particular people. He's writing to the seven churches in Turkey. They're, they're in, in persecution. They're, they're in, in dire straits. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him. Every eye, even those who pierced him. What's that reference to? Yeah, he was pierced on the, on the cross. Remember that moment? And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. It's a hopeful word for us people who are trying to follow Jesus. Now, the last, last text, and I'll open up for questions. Revelation 21. <clears throat> See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be God's peoples, and God himself, God's very self will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. That's a reference to Isaiah 65. To your friends who say, Oh, the Old Testament is old stuff, and, the, and Jesus comes in and eliminates all the Old Testament. No, right here. And there's a ton more in Jesus' teachings. I'm making all things new. All things. Panta. All. Everything. Our little dog, Sally, who was our first, our first dog after Julie and I got married. Little Cocker Spaniel. You, she, if this, imagine this is a, a coffee table about that high. Sally, Julie trained her, and she was trained so well. Sally, and she was beautiful. She just had this beautiful red hair, and just this, she was just the perfect little Cocker Spaniel-looking dog. You could set a cheeseburger on that table and say, Sally, No. She would not take her eyes off that cheeseburger. And she'd want to eat it, real, but she would just stay there. And if you said, okay, Sally, eat it, boom, she'd, she'd get it. Sally's going to be made new. Somebody, I, I get asked all the time, are there going to be dogs in heaven? And I, I say, if there aren't, I don't want to go. Cats, I'm not so sure about it. <laughs> all you cat lovers, don't send me emails or notes. We have, we've had cats all our time, too. 
<clears throat> all things will be made new. Remember what I said last week about the way Revelation describes the, uh, the new Jerusalem? It'd be this gigantic, it, it was dimensions that were beyond their imagination, uh, just beyond their imagination. They don't know about a, a round earth like ours. It's, it's bigger than the earth itself, and they're understanding the earth itself. It's, and it's walled in, but every gate is open all the time. It's always open for everyone. See, I'm making all things new. That's the final promise. Not some get to go to heaven, some get burned forever. We'll make all things new. All right, we have five minutes for any questions you might have. Um, uh, I know it was a lot to go through, but, but that was a little less than last, for last two weeks, so hopefully that was uh, absorbable. Please. Your, your opening comment about why uh, uh, it seems that this country uh, uh, holds to, uh, you know, the, this literal mm -hmm. uh, thing with regard to rapture. Wait, wait, why does the United States, why does it seem to be so popular here, the rapture or the end of the world yeah. also? Yes. Uh -huh. uh, Hmm. Yeah. And that's, that seems to be the basis for, for rapture. Uh, well, the, I think it's a basis for some of the conclusions that are drawn about the second coming of Jesus. Um, the word rapture is nowhere in the Bible. So to my, to my literalist friends, I say, I, I'm sure, I'd, I'd like to believe in it, maybe. Um, show it to me in the Bible. Now, there is a text, I think it's in, in Thessalonians or maybe it's in Corinthians, where in the Latin, vulga, in the, in the, Latin um, the word is, uh, rap, I, don't, I don't know Latin, I, I know about eight words, rapier or rapier or something like that, and that's the root of the word rapture. Okay, great, but that's not Greek or Hebrew. So we know the New Testament is written in Greek. It's not, it's not even close. Um, there's, there's just no reference to the, to the, and then they quote the twinkling of an eye and all these. These are all metaphorical. I mean, they're all metaphorical. Um, and, and anytime we encounter metaphors in the Bible, especially, uh, we're encountering a, a picture of something else that we have no real words for finally. So yeah, I think there's, there's that, there is that literal understanding of it, which you remember last week, I think I, last week we talked about, you know, if, you kid, if, you, if, if your, your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, you know, and I, I say to my friends obnoxiously sometimes as, who are fundamentalists, you have both eyes and both hands, either you're perfect or you don't take the Bible literally, you know, I mean, honestly, you can't, you can't, you can't do that. So yeah, I think, I think that's, that's some of it, but I think, I think um, sociologically though, that there's something about the... Um, uh, the, this, this sort of false sense of persecution um, uh, among some folks in our country who are just absolutely sure they're not getting their fair shake theologically or religiously. And so that's, that's kind of been, made this a big deal. I, I don't know. Um, I, I need to do a lot more research on that. Please, right there. Right. Right. Yeah, sure. That would be that would that would be related. So just make sure you all heard. She's talking about some churches will say you're you're not saved unless you accept Jesus Christ as your as your savior. When I was growing up, the churches I grew up in, the confession of faith was I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and I accept Him as my personal Lord and Savior. 
which is fascinating. Again, where is that in the Bible? It's not, no. Especially the part, my personal Lord and Savior. Um, when I, I was in Bible college and my cousin, Dave Root, was the professor. Uh, uh, he was Dr. Root when I was there, though. <clears throat> and, and it was New Testament theology. And I went to a little Bible college before I went to seminary. And uh, senior level class. And he comes out and he's got his coffee mug and he's got this deep bass voice. And, he, and, he, and there's a class of about 40 of us. And he's with this guy's coffee mug. He said, um, what is a personal Lord and Savior? And smart mouth cousin Glenn said, don't you know? <laughs> and he said, well, Mr. Miles, stand up and tell me where it is in the Bible. Uh, Mr. Miles slunk down in his chair and said, I have no idea. It's not, it's not there. Without, that's a, that's a, that you, can, you can make an argument for that idea where it is, uh, of course. But that's, but that's part of what happens is, is um, uh, my church in Kansas City, we changed, we changed the way people join the church from I, 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 I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I accept him as my personal Lord and Savior because I came in there and argued strongly with the leadership of the church and so forth that this church doesn't really believe that. I mean, that's not, that's, that doesn't fit with who we are. We change it to I trust in God. I trust in God as, as, as revealed in Jesus Christ. Simple and sure, clear based on trust. Um, and I, you know, I had a few folks come and say, but the Bible teaches that we have to accept Jesus as our Savior or we're going to, well, you can, you can make an argument on a couple of texts, but that's when I go to Matthew 25 and say, according to Matthew 25, if I feed the poor, I'm going, whether I'm a Buddhist or a Hindu or an atheist. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that, that, is, that is part of it. They, 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 they take the salvific texts that have to do with salvation. By the way, whenever you see the word salvation in the Bible, you, you know what you're looking at, don't you? A word that means live your life to the fullest. Live now. Live it fully and alive. Be fully alive now. It's about now. It's not about when, after we die. It's almost always about now. Yes, please. I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it, I, here's, here's my Here's my serious answer to that. I can, I can tell you that as much as a nine-month-old fetus that is yet to emerge from the womb can tell you what life's like after it comes out of the womb. You see what I'm saying with that? That's not original to me. I heard, I heard a preacher say that once. That fetus has, you know, it's fully alive. And in fact, if you're a fetus and it's nine months, you're warm and cozy. You're getting all your food, right? I mean, you have no worries. You don't have cable, but other than that... Right? It's okay. And then as you're being born, you, you know, you, you, I mean, I don't remember it, but, you know, I, I, I don't remember. I remember when Julie had her babies, but she had a C-section. But you can't, you know, for that baby, it's this, it's this intense time of change. There's no way that baby can describe what's next after it emerges from, from its mother. Um, that's kind of how my perception of heaven is. I have no idea what it's, what's next. I, I have trust and faith and hope. That, that indeed uh, it will be a new life. Right. Right. It is officially 8.02. Stand up. God, like the ones who wrote the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like the one that we, we name as our Lord, who lived and walked among us, whose way of teaching was so intense and powerful that the most powerful were frightened. 
in the name of the one who, who had the vision at the end of Revelation of all things being made new. Send us from this place, secure in the knowledge that you know us better than we know ourselves and that we are indeed your children. Amen. Good night, everybody. Good night online.